Good morning. Welcome to worship. Uh, it is good to be with you. Uh, before we go into our service, I'll just highlight one announcement on the back of the bulletin, and that is this, that church life night, or as we call it, many call it Wednesday nights, uh, are starting this week at 6 p.m. Um, there are going to be classes for every age of person, uh, including the zero to three range. So we hope all of you can come. Uh, please bring uh, your friends and your neighbors. We are doing um, a lot of work uh, to make this evening uh, beneficial to each of you. Um, we're working on everything from the menu uh, to the classes to everything about it. Uh, we want you to be um, welcomed and to enjoy this time and be encouraged. So please come this Wednesday at 6 p.m. We'll end by 7.15 p.m. so you can get home. Put some kids to bed if that's your case. Um, that's the only announcement that we have to give this morning. God welcomes us into his presence by his spirit. He gives us the ability to worship him. And so we thank him for that. So would you take a few moments to thank God that he has brought you here and to ask him to help you um, have eyes to see and ears to hear his word this morning. Let's do that now.
And uh, once we were talking to him, he couldn't stop talking about all the different beautiful things that he saw. It was just as easy to talk about and praise those things as, you know, getting up in the morning. But that's really true for all of us. We will find what we, what we see is beautiful. We'll want to praise it. And the scriptures remind us that God is beautiful. He is beautiful not just in his appearance, but chiefly in his character, full of meekness justice and righteousness and grace. And for that beauty, let it call you into worship. Would you stand for our call to worship? This is from Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. And let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Our God is worthy to be praised. And so let's praise him. Hymn number 170, Fairest Lord Jesus. And let's praise the beauty of our God. 170.
beautiful Savior and Lord of the nations, we honor and adore you. We gather in your name and in your presence with faith that you would give your blessings so that we might sing your praises, rehearse your graces in our lives, confess our sins, and receive your forgiveness. Experience the mercies that you have won for us by your beautiful, righteous life, your glorious and tragic and ugly death for our sins, your resurrection and victory over sin. Hallelujah and praise to our magnificent King. We long to see your glory. We ask with Moses that you would show us your glory and and pray that, that through the Scriptures and by the presence of your Spirit, you would give us all that our hearts could handle, a taste of your beauty, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, God, we pray that as we worship, you would give us your spirit, that he would guide us in our worship, that you would fill the the singing with your presence and your pleasure so that we are nourished in our souls. We pray that as we offer offerings and listen to your word, as we give our prayers and receive the sacraments, your grace would abound in our lives, turning us away from sin and toward Christ to his glory and honor because his name is beautiful. We pray that as you would equip us for life, you would prepare us to be faithful as disciples. And as disciples, we take the prayer you taught your disciples to pray. We pray it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In your bulletins, you'll find a way for us to confess what we believe together. It's brought from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Now, the, a, a, a man's questions and answers by themselves are not any, in any way inspired, but we believe these reflect what the Scriptures to teach. And so we're confessing what we believe the Bible to teach us. And in particular, we've confessed that that God holds us to a righteous standard that we cannot meet, but He has provided a way of salvation. And as we have confessed those things, now we continue to, to say, how does that salvation get worked out in real life and history in our lives? I would ask you to confess your faith with the bold print as I read you the normal print. Are all men then... Saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam. True faith. Are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of a mere grace, only for the sake of Christ. The faith of the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. Amen. Please be seated. This last part of the question 21, the, the answer that we just recited is what all of our life hinges on. It's the foundation. Uh, it's, 
the Holy Spirit who works faith in our hearts by the good news of Jesus. So if you read answer 21 where we see that true faith is a sure knowledge and you're sitting here thinking my faith is anything but sure, it's anything but solid, then it's to God who we go to to ask God give me this sure knowledge, this secure and firm confidence that you are the one who grants through the Holy Spirit. It's all God's grace working in our hearts through the gospel. Out of God's grace, he grants us forgiveness, righteousness, salvation. It's the, as the confessions teach us, grace is the unmerited favor of God, God's favor in our lives that we have not earned at all. And at the same time, the great mystery is, is that we're completely responsible for our response to the gospel. God is the one who gives us this responsibility. He's also the one who works faith in our lives and even the response that we give itself. So let's take some time to praise God through prayer in this time of prayer um, to enjoy the unmerited favor of God that we possess through faith in Jesus. We'll take some time to pray individually, silently, and then I'll lead us in a prayer corporately after a few moments. Let's go to God and lift up everything that is on our hearts and our minds and praise him for faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hear these great words from Romans chapter 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous, righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Lord, you have blessed us with faith. You've blessed us by not counting our sin against us. You counted it against your son. And then you accounted and gave us his righteousness. God, what a mystery that you give faith and give us our own responsibility to listen and respond. And so we worship you, we honor you, we love you, even in the mystery of faith and salvation. Lord Jesus, we pray, as we always do, that through the different avenues and ministry of our church, that you would be glorified and that you would make us into disciples who are living out your word in all areas of life. We pray specifically that as our Wednesday night ministries begin again, 
that you would strengthen our faith, that you would give faith to those who do not yet have faith in you, that you would do marvelous things through this simple time of coming together as a community uh, for worship and for good food and for good conversation. Lord, do those things. God, we thank you for the massive turn in COVID cases and hospitalizations, and we pray that you would finally put this virus away forever. God, we want to thank you for the ways that you bless our children uh, and give them opportunities uh, to enjoy your creation. Um, In one way, you do this through team sports, so we thank you for those opportunities and for the coaches and assistants and all of those people who put these together uh, for the enjoyment and for the training up of our children. Lord, we ask that you would continue to bless uh, all of our students through these uh, ministry avenues and activities this fall. Lord, help us to hear and believe the good news that we are going to hear from Nehemiah. We pray that you would renew us through this table, through the bread and the cup, that you would speak clearly through Pastor Scott as we listen to your word and as he preaches it. God, be glorified and honored in all that we do this morning and throughout the week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Father in heaven, the whole earth and all its fullness is yours. The cattle on a thousand hills, all that we possess is yours because you've given it to us to act in your name and for your honor. With this offering, we acknowledge your possessions. We acknowledge the gifts you've given to us and we return it to you with thanks and faith. We pray that you would give us the same heart you have to use our resources the way that you would have us use them, that we would delight in the honor and glory of Christ, the advance of his cause in the world, to meet the needs of the poor and the sojourner and the one who is distant. We pray that you would provide for mercy and missions as well as the ministry of the gospel here in this church and that this offering accompanied by your power that does all that we can ask and more than we can think We pray that you would make Christ's name great to us, and we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare for God's Word, would you take your hymnals and meditate on what Christ's life was like and what he accomplished for us. Man of sorrows, what a name. Hymn number 246. 246.
Please be seated. We take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah 6. When uh, you think about what a spiritual life looks like, Nehemiah gives us something with some concrete realities. In his case, it was literal. They were building a wall as a way to honor God, as a way to serve the safety and protection of God's people. But also, what they may not have even realized is they were preparing for the coming of Christ, that he would come to that city. And in that city that they were rebuilding, uh, there would... uh, be salvation accomplished through his death and resurrection. And so we want to think, what does it look like for us to, to, to live spiritual lives, influenced by the Holy Spirit, living faithfully? And when you ask the question, Jesus would answer it perhaps something like this, that, that all of the commands of God, all of his calling on our lives can be summed up in just two ways. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. To love God preeminently, to love others consequently. That's the, the, the spiritual life. But even that can sometimes be vague and hard to sort of grasp. So let's, let's add to that. What, is, what would it look like to love God preeminently? Well, it's at least thinking that all of life is lived in His presence. And that as we conduct our lives from morning to evening in work, in family, in recreation and play, in private times, in public times, wherever we are, we are with God and His grace is sufficient for that moment. Coming to enjoy His presence and His attention, coming to trust that His grace is enough for what I'm going through today and learning to love and enjoy uh, our God walking with us as we walk with Him humbly. But it's also deepening our knowledge to love Him with our minds, to understand and recognize and know our God better, to build our theology and build our not just knowledge but wisdom, learning to take the theology that we have learned and apply it in the way that we think and act and speak and even address the areas of our life like How do I take my theology and address it to my sense of guilt or shame or fear or anxiety or even joys and happiness and successes? That's loving God. Also want to love our neighbor. This is the spiritual life. To to grow in um, a conviction about our neighbor's well-being as if it were our own. To love our neighbor as ourselves. And of course, this means loving our believing neighbor, the brothers and sisters, sharing empathy for what we're all experiencing. When one is grieved, I'm grieved. When one is rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. That's sort of the the attitude of the person who's becoming what God intends them to be in the church, Uh, willing to serve and meet each other's needs as if they were mine. I'm pretty active in taking care of my own needs. But others' needs are, are less significant. But maturing Christian faith and spiritual life is when another's needs are just as important to me as my own. 
And similarly, not just loving the, the believer, but loving the unbeliever because he is made in God's image, because uh, he is valuable as God's creation and because God so loved the world. And so we begin to think, how can I draw the, the person in my life who is an unbeliever toward Christ? How can I communicate them the, the hope of the gospel, that they could share the joy of knowing God with me? And, and not just the ones I know, but also the ones that are further out. So I care about missions and those who are far out, uh, away from the gospel. These are things that matter, and they are growing concerns in our lives. This is, still leaves a lot of room for variety, a lot of room for each of us to work out what it's going to look like in our particular lives to, to practice love for God and love for our neighbor. But it's not less than those things. In Nehemiah 6, we actually see God showing in an example through Nehemiah things that would draw us away from being devoted to God's kingdom coming and following the Spirit. Things that would draw us into uh, more selfishness rather than more love. And when we see these things, we want to see how God gives us a way of escape as well. That's what we'll find in Nehemiah 6. So as we approach this passage thinking about the calling that God has on each of our lives to love Him and to love our neighbor and what keeps us from it, let's ask God to show us where we might be tripped up but also where we might find grace to endure. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we need your word to instruct, to empower. We want your strength to flow from your word into our lives that we might endure faithfully, maturing in the faith, growing in the love of Christ toward us, and then to share it, to embrace your affections and love you for it, and then to love others. But it is easy for us to get off track. We pray that as we find the many things that would pull us away from your calling in our lives, you would give us a single-minded focus to seek your kingdom first and let everything else fall into place according to your providence. We pray as we read these scriptures, you would bless the reading and the meditations we have upon them and then strengthen our hands for the life you've called us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1. This is God's word. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakefirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should I, the work stop while I leave it to come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations that Geshem, sorry, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. 
And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. And then I said to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors to the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired. I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadia and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah and the son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the, the, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. This is God's word. It's completely true and utterly trustworthy. I'm going to ask you to pay particular attention to two verses. The first one that I want you to notice is verse 9. It says this, They all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. And then verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. Here you can see he's facing opposition. Their goal is to stop the work. And then verse 15, they finished the work. The opposition was unsuccessful. God's agenda was accomplished. This is sort of the, the grand picture to get. God has a work that he will do. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not be able to stop the action and building and growth of the church. He says, no weapon that is fashioned against us will stand. He says, the church will be established. It is his will. In the midst of this moment, when the church is growing and being built by the Acts of the saints in loving God and loving their neighbor, though there is opposition. And so, like in verse 9, we can often feel, okay, God, I see you're going to build this church. I've seen the book of Revelation. A number no one could count from every tongue and tribe and nation. You're going to get that done. That's a future reality that is set in stone. But right now, I feel fatigue. I feel exhausted. I don't 
feel the energy I think I need to contribute to that work. And, and yet it is Nehemiah's conviction, rightly, that the reason that the work gets done is because God's people endure. And so he prays, strengthen my hands, right here in the middle of the opposition, right in the middle of the contested outcomes, knowing what God has said will be. He doesn't say, well, God said this will happen, so I can just sit back and rest because he'll figure it out. Rather, he's energized by what he knows God to be doing. He sees the blessing of God that is on him, and he is committed to doing so even when there is opposition. And, you know, you can sense your calling to be faithful, to live the life that is influenced by the Spirit of God toward loving God and loving your neighbor. And yet, there are plenty of places where we can easily be pulled away from that. Take a look at this passage with me, and you'll see the first of those things is distraction. In verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. Now, uh, Nehemiah responds to this invitation to the plain of Ono by saying, Oh, no. Uh, Sorry, that was... I tried. Uh, In all seriousness, what's the problem with going to a meeting? Now, at some level, uh, Nehemiah here perceives that they intend to do him harm. Now, we don't really know if Nehemiah's assessment is right. The, The Scriptures aren't telling us from the kind of omnipotent viewpoint that says, here, I see everything and I know that this is accurate. Rather, it's just Nehemiah's own letters. And so he, maybe he's right. After all, he's seen that, that, that uh, Geshem has an army and he has influence and he is willing to threaten violence. And so it's certainly realistic for Nehemiah to come to this conclusion. But whether or not his conclusion was completely accurate, he says, I'm not going because I think bad things can happen. But that isn't what he tells them. They say, come to this meeting. And, you know, some things good could happen, right? I mean, after all, he could go and negotiate some kind of peace. He could broker some financial deal that makes Geshem feel less threatened and allows the wall to be built and all those builders could put their swords away and be focused. Maybe there's some kind of diplomatic solution to this. And after all, he is a a governor over this region appointed by Artaxerxes, and he has the right to to belong. And, And of course, this might appeal to Nehemiah's sense of credibility. Here are influential governors and powerful people, and they've invited him to come and be part of that power broker system. And Nehemiah could look at this and go, hey, there's nothing wrong with this idea. And there isn't. But he says, I've got this great work. This is what God's called me to. A great work of building this wall. Why should I let that go so that I can come be a part of this meeting? Now, listen, this is one of the chief strategies to to draw you away, to distract you from seeking God's kingdom first. It's to put something in front of you that isn't really bad. It's just not what you're called to. It's a good thing, probably. But it's pulling you away from saying, I belong to Jesus. 
and to His kingdom first and foremost. Here's how this will often look like. It will be, you know, I've got something that would really be good for the the kingdom of God, these things that, that help me love God and my neighbor, but this thing is still a good thing. It's something Christians can do. I'll get to that other stuff later. I, I, I think I need to learn to pray more consistently and better. But I, I just, I've got stuff that I need to do right now. I'll get to that. God will make it happen. Or I want to increase my knowledge and understanding of what God is like and of his salvation. I'd like to read some theology and deepen my love and affection for God. But the truth is, I'll just have more time in the winter, you know, when there's less going on. Or I want to be involved in uh, caring for the saints, in, in meeting the needs of other people around me. I want to get to know and be a, a person who can listen to someone who's lonely or uh, pay attention to the, the people who sit near me. Uh, but here's the problem. I'm just in a season of life when there's so much going on. When this little season of life fades, I'll start doing that. And we constantly say, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And it's a, it's a, it's a trick of an enemy who puts something that distracts you from saying, I want to seek God's kingdom in my life and in the world. I want to contribute to that. I want to use the resources and the platform and the position and the neighborhood that God has given me to honor God. But I get distracted by perfectly fine but lesser things. Here's how you resist that. Nehemiah says, I'm doing a great work. I'm doing a great work here. Why should I let it go? Do you know that the the 10 minutes that you spent praying by yourself was a great work. It, it, it feels small, and you're like, I don't know if it really accomplished anything. It was a great work. Those few minutes that you picked up a book and said, I need to read so that I can know my God more richly and deeply, that was a great work. It was not small. The, the $15 that you send to a missionary every month, You know, like that's hardly anything. It's a great work. When you make an effort to serve God's people by a phone call or a text message, by a prayer, by being part of uh, fellowship on Wednesday nights, by serving in the nursery, wherever you find a place to put your hand for the sake of God's honor and name with a sense that this is for Him, that is a great work. Don't let other things pull you from it. But when that is ineffective with Nehemiah, they go to open slander. Look at verse 5. In verse 5 it says, In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. It was written... It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. This is why you're building the wall, and according to his reports, you wish to become their king. He goes on to say, you've got prophets telling everybody, God wants you to be king. Now, this is just a a, a bold fabrication. This is not true at all. 
It's a, a conspiracy theory that they have just set forward for uh, people to believe. They've, they've imputed motives to Nehemiah that they don't have any idea, and it's really just a, a, an attack designed to discredit and discourage Nehemiah. I mean, here's why that particular lie is dangerous. Imagine being a Jewish person, and you start to hear, because it's an open letter. He didn't seal it. It wasn't private. It was meant to be spread. He says, you're, you're a Jewish guy working on the, on the wall with your friends, and you hear, hey, Nehemiah is trying to rebel against Artaxerxes, and you know, I don't think I want to be on that side. Artaxerxes sends the military, and if I'm on Nehemiah's side, caught doing this thing with Nehemiah, it's bad for me. And so your workers get discouraged. And of course, Artaxerxes could hear about it, and he could send the military if he believes it. Nehemiah, on the other hand, here hears this, and it was meant to discourage him. You've probably experienced that, where someone gets the wrong idea, misunderstands what you were doing, attributes a motive to you that was far lower than your real motive, exaggerates the flaws that are, you know, I got some, but I really want people to only know the real flaws. I don't want them to exaggerate them and make up others. I got enough of my own. And yet, I hear people, and they'll say something about me, and it, it's discouraging, right? What happens when you're discouraged? Instead of loving God and neighbor, which is an outward focus, I tend to think how this affects me, what's going on with me. I start to build up little self-protective walls. I'm starting to look only at me. You see, now I'm no longer able to really love. I've got to protect me. That's what discouragement will do. And an easy way to get discouraged is to hear people saying stuff about you that you feel like exaggerates or doesn't tell the truth or attributes motives that aren't yours and makes you look bad. And all of a sudden, if anything, my prayers are like, God, why would you let this happen? So it pulls me away from what God has called me to do because I start to only turn in on myself rather than stay committed to loving God and my neighbor, which requires an outward focus. So what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah sends a letter back and says, what you said isn't true, but rather than openly defend himself with everyone, he prays. They wanted to frighten us into thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done, but now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. God, give me some endurance here. Help me to, to put in your hands what is causing me anxiety and I'll keep doing what you've called me to do. That's, that's Nehemiah's way. God, you're strong. You can take care of this. If I need defending, you defend me. I'll do what you call me to do. Years ago, I was listening to R.C. Sproul on a recorded audio of one of his uh, sermons. And he told uh, this illustration about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was trying to lead his church toward what was, I, looking back on it historically, to be more faithful. Uh, at the time, in order to be part of the civil life and government, you had to be a member of a church, and so the churches allowed halfway membership. You could be a halfway member, or you didn't talk, it didn't profess faith in Jesus, but it allowed you to be a, a civil uh, government person, be employed in regular life. 
And uh, he thought that was all wrong. And so he was trying to lead the church to being more faithful, but the church didn't really want to go where he was leading. And among those who were there, there were some who started rumors about his motivations, what he actually was trying to accomplish. And it was to assassinate his character. Some of his friends and allies said, you've got to address these rumors. You've got to defend yourself. And according to R.C. Sproul, Edwards basically replied, if I vindicate myself, I'll gain only the vindication that I can achieve. But if I wait for God, he will vindicate me with the vindication he can achieve. Well, the result was he lost the confidence of his congregation. And they asked him to resign. And he lost his pastorate. And he moved from the, the city on the east coast to in the, seventh, in the 18th century, the frontiers, where he started a ministry among Native Americans. And after he had been gone months, a couple of people in the church confessed to starting the rumors. His reputation was restored, but he lost his ministry. In, in some ways, Nehemiah here is saying, God, if they come after me, that's on you. I'm going to do the work, but I trust you to strengthen my hands today. And what you bring is okay. I'll trust you. You see, th that's how you handle discouragement and rumors told about you. God, I'm putting my reputation in your hands. My anxieties are on you. You give me strength to love you and my neighbor. The third thing is fear. Look at verse 10. Now I went to the house of Shemaiah whose relatives are mentioned and whose names are hard to pronounce, so I won't do it again. And Shemaiah said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. It's a bold threat. And because they have an army and because there's something that's credible about it, it was meant to provoke fear. The last verse says that he wrote letters to frighten uh, to make me afraid. It was a continuous assault to make him afraid. Afraid for his life. Afraid for what might happen. And how is he supposed to handle this? Let's think about how this works in your life. Well, what causes you to be afraid? If I had to guess, most of you are not worried about a prophet coming along saying, someone's coming by night to kill you. But you have fears. They might be economic. They might be about health. They might be about social arrangements. They might be related to your emotions. You, you know some things that have, have caused your fear to rise. And you can see it sometimes coming, boiling over. And you know how fear does the same thing discouragement does. It makes me only think about myself. The problem, though, is not being afraid. It's how we handle our fear. The chief thing we want to do is say, I've got to find something that will protect me, and I've got to hide behind it. That's why they say, go to the temple. You'll find sanctuary. But Nehemiah knew something. He knew the history of Israel. He knew the scriptures. And he would remember the last time a civil authority, a king, went into the temple. It was Uzziah. Uzziah marched in the temple and he went into the place where Nehemiah would supposedly go to get safety. And it's a place where only the priests were to go. 
And when Uzziah does so, he offers some incense there. And because he is a king who doesn't belong there, God strikes him with leprosy. Uzziah, who was a faithful man by and large, lived with leprosy for the last few years of his life. Apart from the the community of faith, not able to be a part even in his own household, even though he was king. Nehemiah goes, that's not where I'm going to find safety. This can't be a real prophet who's telling me the truth. He wouldn't lead me to sin against God. And so in the moment of fear, in what looked like it could be sanctuary and safety, he said, yeah, but that's not trusting God, so I won't go there. You see, this is the heart of a person who says, I'm going to stay in my calling instead of think only about how I can protect myself. I'm going to put my fearful situation in the hands of God. I'm going to look to his wisdom. I'm going to do what he says. I'll obey, and it's up to him to protect me if he will. He anticipates the coming justice of God. He says, remember Sanballat and Tobiah, what they've tried to do to me. And then the last thing that happens in this passage, and it's, it's maybe the most difficult of them all, it's delayed relief. In verse 15, they finished the wall. And he says, our enemies heard of it, and even the nations felt great because they knew there's no way we could finish this wall like this unless God had blessed us and so they could see, our enemies could tell this was the hand of God on us. However, verse 17, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them. He found that even the nobles, the people who should be on his side, the Jews who were there, who, were, who, who should have been for Jerusalem and for the rebuilding, they were in league with Tobiah. They were bound by covenant. Probably that means they had money dealings with him. Some of them were family by marriage. He had worked his way into these families and built dependences, and now they were keeping tabs on Nehemiah for Tobiah. The wall's finished. Shouldn't this opposition be over? He lost. And yet... It's ongoing. You know that moment when you're under affliction or suffering of some sort, you've prayed for relief and you see it coming? And you're like, here, finally, I'm going to get relief. And then it doesn't happen. Instead of getting relief, the suffering continues. And you're like, I can't take this anymore. I feel like giving up. I want you to know that when that happens, you're not alone. Nehemiah was here before you. It's not unusual, but he prays, God, strengthen my hands. You see, this really is at the heart of this passage. God, strengthen my hands. If you don't provide the strength, my weakness, I can't endure. But if you are going to finish this job of building and establishing and protecting and maturing and growing your church, including me, you're going to have to strengthen my hands. But then I believe you will. And so I'll cast my fears on you and my discouragements on you. And I will look at my calling and stay with it. And only through the suffering endurance of God's saints is the church built. That's, that's what Nehemiah shows you here. Because if you, if you jump to the next chapter preview, 
There's a great revival. And in that great revival, Nehemiah will surely look and say, okay, the work was worth it. As he looks at people who, con- who are convicted by the Scriptures and renew themselves in covenant with God, he says, if my suffering brought this about, then it was worth it. And, and I want you to know, this is always God's pattern. It is through your sacrifice and your suffering that you will see the church grow because that is the way he works in Jesus. It was through his enduring suffering that he brought about salvation. It is the way God builds his church. So don't be surprised, but rather say, God, strengthen my hands. In fact, come to this table where as your body is strengthened by bread and drink, so your soul is strengthened by the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Our God in heaven, strengthen our hands for the work of serving your kingdom and keep us from every obstacle. Rather, overcome them in us. We are weak, but you are strong. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you to take your hymnals and turn to hymn 247. And then uh, while we sing, the elders are going to come and prepare the table. We're going to sing the first two verses of hymn 247. First two verses, let's stand and sing. Hear the words of institution from Luke chapter 22. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And likewise, the cup after they, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. If you have read the Gospels, you know that Jesus was relentlessly slandered throughout his life and ministry. But he continued preaching the truth, healing the sick, eating meals with prostitutes, being with the poor. And he did this because he was on a mission. He had a calling to seek and to save the lost. Jesus' reputation would be confirmed at his resurrection, and it will be reconfirmed and affirmed at his second coming for all people to see. And through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we are called to the same kind of life, to the same type of living. Peter says this, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The God of all grace is real, and he is here with us by his Spirit, and he has the last word about you. If by faith you trust in his Son, Jesus, he gives you this bread as a sign and seal of his body broken on the cross, for you. He took the slander, the gossip, the accusations, and he also took the punishment that we deserve for sin. This cup of juice, he gives you as a sign and seal of his blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sin, to cover and forgive you, and to clear your name to unite you to the name above all names, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So if you are a member of this church or another, and in good standing, I invite you to enjoy this table, this bread and this juice. If you have not yet put your faith in Christ, or you do not understand what we are doing with this table, with the bread and the juice, then please pass when the elements are passed by. And you can take this time to pray or to write questions that we can hopefully answer for you after the service is over or sometime later this week. So if you trust in Christ, enjoy this table. Rest secure in the name of Jesus, who you are united to. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for this table, this earthly, physical reminder of your body and blood broken and poured out for sinners such as us. Lord, would you encourage us? Would you strengthen our hands, make our faith secure in you by this experience that you have laid out for us at this table? Bless us now, I pray, through this table. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, He took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples as I, ministering in his name, give this bread to you. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The elders will pass out the bread, and once everyone's been served, we'll eat together.
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The body of Christ broken for you. Let's eat together. In the same manner, he also took the cup and having given thanks, as I've done in his name, he gave it to the disciples saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Again, the elders will pass out the juice and once everyone's been served, we'll drink together.
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's drink together. Please pray with me. Lord, we are overjoyed to experience and to know once again uh, your great love for us, your body and your blood given for us for the forgiveness of our sins, for life and for hope. Would you strengthen us? For the week ahead, and would you give us rest on this Sabbath Sunday? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand, and we'll continue singing from hymn number 247. We'll sing the last verse of hymn 247. who trust the Lord Jesus and look forward to his coming, receive his blessing. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> 